Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hi, I am Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. We are the co-hosts of the Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast from HowStuffWorks.com. And as you might suspect from the name, what we like to talk about are the things that are of historical significance, but maybe you didn't hear about in your standard history class. So sometimes they are famous figures and we're talking about the lesser known parts of their lives. Sometimes they are people and groups and places that are often overlooked in history class. Lots of cool stuff. So come and join us. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous advances we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, some spiders live in colonies with tens of thousands of individuals, and sometimes they share themselves to death. Yep. Unrelated, some scientists are saying that Earth has officially entered a new geological epoch and that it's one of our own making. But first, my fellow writer, researcher, and Whig fan, Kristen Conger, explains how women with autism are being systemically underdiagnosed. Guardian columnist Nicola Clark started the Twitter hashtag SheCan'tBeAutistic to spotlight the problem and spur solutions. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reports an autism spectrum disorder prevalence rate of 1 in 68 American children. But obtaining that diagnosis and the life-changing therapies and resources that can come with it is particularly challenging for adult women like Nicola Clark because the combination of gender and age can make them doubly invisible to the clinical community. As with ADHD, researchers are only now paying closer attention to how autism functions and presents in girls, since historically it's been described as a neurodevelopmental disorder that creates extreme male brains, or brains that are sort of masculine superlatives. 
In fact, many diagnostic tools have been developed based exclusively on how autism functions and presents in adolescent boys. And that means being a woman going to the doctor to find out if she might be autistic is somewhat like going to a proctologist for a pap smear. It's just not going to happen. To get a better sense of why that is, it's helpful to know that the three primary symptoms of autism spectrum disorder are social impairments, communication difficulties, and repetitive or restrictive behaviors. Based on older research, boys are about four to five times likelier, on average, to be diagnosed and therefore receive appropriate treatment than girls, at least for now. More recent studies are paying closer attention to both how girls' brain structures and socialization patterns differ from boys among both autistic and non-autistic populations. They suggest the gender gap may be narrower, especially among high-functioning kids. So when it comes to those three autism hallmarks, girls tend to be more social and verbally fluent than boys, and repetitive behaviors are often less outstanding. And whereas autistic boys might exhibit aggression and hyperactivity, autistic girls are more adept at masking outward manifestations of the disorder. Fast forward these patterns to adulthood, and women like Nicola Clark, who have friends, families, kids, and stereotypically feminine interests, may be deterred from receiving autistic assessments. As one woman tweeted, hashtag she can't be autistic because she's an extrovert. Cynthia Kim, a writer at Autism Women's Network, says autistic women are instead likelier to be diagnosed solely for eating disorders and anxiety, which commonly co-occur with autism in women, as well as obsessive-compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, and borderline personality disorder. But I can't tell you precisely how often this happens because it simply hasn't been thoroughly researched. What I do know for a fact is that a lot remains to be explored and clarified in how autism functions and presents in girls and women across their lifespans, including its effect on relationships and employment, as well as optimal treatments and resources for aging women with autism, a cohort that's virtually undetectable in existing studies. Also, correct diagnoses can make a world of difference. Just take it from Nicola Clark, who wrote in the Guardian, "Quote: When the diagnosis came, I cried with relief. I'd felt it was almost a battle that I'd had to prove to myself that I wasn't mad." Next up, senior writer Jonathan Strickland explores the proposal that Earth has entered a new epoch, the Anthropocene, and why we shouldn't pop the champagne just yet. Scientists representing the Working Group on the Anthropocene announced at the 35th International Geological Congress that we've entered a new epoch in Earth's geological timescale, and this one is all about you. Okay, not you specifically, but all you humans out there, and the ones in here too. Essentially, the Anthropocene is an epoch in which human influences are shaping the Earth in a geologically significant way. So let's back up and brush up on our geology. The geological timescale consists of eons, eras, periods, epochs, and ages. Geologists define these chunks of time by looking at layers of rock. Changes in the strata mark transitions from one chunk of time to another. So these chunks aren't defined by a specific number of years, but instead by changes to the Earth itself. 
Eons are the largest time chunks, and ages are the smallest. The Anthropocene is an epoch and a subdivision of the Quaternary period. We map these chunks of time on the geological time scale, more officially known as the International Chronostratigraphic Chart. That's hard to say. According to the working group, we were in the post-Ice Age Holocene epoch from about 11,500 years ago until 1950, on a Tuesday. So what happened in 1950 to justify updating all of our geology textbooks? Actually, a lot of stuff happened. The human population was booming. We began consuming more fossil fuels, producing tons of plastic, increasing our use of fertilizers, and testing nuclear weapons. You can see this activity recorded in transitions to the rock strata themselves. Those changes are also global in scale. And, yeah, they don't necessarily fit into the yay us category. Changes in the carbon cycle, areas of mass erosion, increases in nitrogen and phosphorus levels from fertilizers, and radioactive deposits are all the markers of the Anthropocene epoch. While the working group recommends we acknowledge that we're in the Anthropocene, it's not yet official. Some geologists might argue that we should bump down Anthropocene to the status of an age rather than an epoch. Others might say that's thinking too small and that we've entered a new geological period. The decision will move to an international committee of scientists who will consider the working group's proposal. If approved, bang, we boldly enter a new epoch we've been in since 1950. And outside of geology, maybe we can take time to consider we're the major influence on this epoch. Our choices are the ones recorded in Earth itself. So maybe this will help guide us into making good decisions. Finally this week, I've got the story of how some social spiders share food with each other so fairly that about a fifth of them die out in every generation. Those of you with the problem with spiders will be really glad that this podcast doesn't come with video. Spiders don't usually hang out with each other because they're highly territorial and sometimes cannibals. But of the 40,000 plus identified species of spiders, we know 25 to be social. One such species, the South American Anolocymus exeimus, has been observed in colonies of 50,000 individual spiders living in communal three-dimensional webs that can span 25 feet by 5 feet, arching through several rainforest trees. These critters cooperate on web upkeep, prey capture, and child care. Brood care? It involves female spiders, which comprise between 78 and 95 percent of any given colony, regurgitating food for the youngsters including youngsters that aren't their own. They self-select tasks based on what each unique spider is personally suited for. Beyond that, the entire neighborhood shares their food supply when the hunting's good, ensuring that no spider goes hungry. Or that's how it usually works. In every generation, about 21% of healthy, established Aexiaimus colonies suddenly collapse and die off. As in, no survivors. It's like the end of the thing, except infinitely worse because there's no Kurt Russell and the entire cast is spiders. So a team of entomologists out of the University of British Columbia tried to figure out why this happens. They experimented with spider populations in the lab, but they also used math. They were looking at prey size and individuals' behavior in growing colonies. Their mathematical model and experiments showed that the spiders tend to hog smaller prey and share larger ones around, meaning there's probably a limit to what a spider considers worth defending. Smaller colonies have smaller webs that catch smaller prey. 
In those cases, the spiders are mostly competing for food. Some individuals may starve, but the overall colony persists. In studies of animal behavior, that's called contest competition. However, when a web gets big enough to catch all large prey all the time, it seems that the spiders start sharing. They even give preferential food access to the hungriest spiders. That's called scramble competition. But they're bringing in less overall food per spider capita. They wind up sharing it so fairly that no one has enough. And boom, colony extinction—not with a bang, but a whimper. But don't worry, A. exeimus populations remain pretty healthy overall, which is great because studying them has led to lots of hypotheses about the evolution of arachnid social behavior. Further research could help scientists get a better handle on how competitive animal behavior is influenced by environmental factors, and how populations are influenced by competitive animal behavior. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe now for more of the latest and strangest science news, and send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover. Plus, your favorite food in New York City. We're going to be there this week.、Uh, by the way, if you're in New York, watch the How Stuff Works social media pages for info on meetups because we're going to be doing a few of those. And、uh, and definitely try to come out to our trivia night on Thursday the eighth. The information for all of that is on the Facebooks. As always, you can send us an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks dot com as well. And for lots more stories like these, head on over to our home planet now dot howstuffworks dot com. Open a limited time eleven month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At five point two five percent APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or Kemba dot org slash cb for details. Offer expires May thirty first, twenty twenty four. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. Five hundred dollars minimum and two hundred fifty thousand dollars maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Live Nation presents Concert Week now through May 14th. Get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids, Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th, visit LiveNation.com/concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, Owen、oh, Two Door Cinema Club.